my purpose this morning is just really just to hit a couple of high points about things that have been happening recently that are changing the way we think about treatment of, of uh, MS. Before I do that, though, I'd like just to mention two other things. One is, is that last weekend, Karen and I and several of my colleagues were together at another meeting. And this was an international meeting that was focused on using exercise to help patients recover function and maximize their function through life. And we basically had investigators from around the country that presented research on how exercise can benefit MS in terms of rewiring the brain and recovering cognitive function, improving fatigue, improving symptoms. And it was a very exciting meeting. And it, it points out that the most important therapy we have to help patients recover function is exercise. And our goal in the future will be to figure out ways to help patients take full advantage of that, both through our programs and through the treatment programs that we have at the university. The second thing, I would like to also ask you to consider, if you have MS, uh, joining us in a research project called the NARCOMS project. This is a database where we send you a very long questionnaire once every six months that we ask you to fill out. And it asks about your symptoms, about what medications you're on, about health insurance, et cetera. And what we're trying to do is to build what we call the Colorado cohort of the NARCOMS project. That database is used by dozens of investigators at every given moment. So there are, are multiple studies going on. We've published over, over 35 papers in peer-reviewed journals. It's used to establish health policy. It's used to help identify areas of need. And so by participating in it, you help provide investigators of all sorts information that they can use to help address issues related to multiple sclerosis. To be honest with you, it does take a couple of hours, once every six months, to fill out. But the data is invaluable. And so the more Coloradoans that we have involved in that, then the more effective we will be at identifying the needs and the impacts of these new therapies here as well. And my colleagues are in the back right under the sign that says, Life is a Ball. So if you're interested in participating in any of the programs, get more information about them, please visit with them. So uh, I'm going to be talking to you about what I refer to as the second generation of immunological therapies for MS. These are also called disease-modifying agents for MS in the literature. And the reason that they're second generation is that they have resulted out of research that actually was predictive. In other words, the first generation of therapies we had were by and large therapies that were found accidentally to be beneficial in MS. Whereas this generation of therapies were specifically designed to treat multiple sclerosis. And there's a perception out there that although these therapies may be more effective than the first generation of therapies, which is probably true in most cases, that they're more dangerous. That's not necessarily true. In the first generation of therapies, we had mitoxantrone, also called nomantrone. That's probably the most toxic drug that we've ever used in multiple sclerosis. It did have a role to play, a limited one. Uh, but these therapies are clearly better than that. The point about these therapies, though, is that the studies that have led to their approval by the FDA are much larger, about 10 times as large as the studies that led to the approval of the interferons, uh, copaxone, and mitoxantrone studies. So as a result, we have more information about the potential risks and attached with them are what we call risk mitigation programs or uh, specific ways of using the drugs in the clinic and monitoring patients to minimize the risks. So when I'm talking about risks, it's not as though the first generation of drugs were particularly safer than this set of drugs. It's that in this set of drugs, we're going to be actively managing the risk profiles much more, so it's important for you to know much more about them. So this is just to remind you that my particular view of MS is that in the early phases, most of the MRI disease activity that we see is actually clinically silent. 
So let's just remind you, the reason that we treat aggressively early in MS is because in early MS, the inflammation in the brain is actually much more active than most patients and physicians are aware of because they're mostly focused on the relapses that are occurring up here. And on average, there's about one relapse for every 10 to 20 new lesions forming in the brain. But those new lesions, even though they're clinically silent in this early phase, do ultimately lead to brain injury, mainly shrinkage of the brain and loss of neurons. And it reaches a point where the brain can no longer compensate and mask that disease activity. And at that point, we believe, or at least I believe, that's the onset of progressive MS. And that's a phase that we have yet to really be able to fundamentally change. So it's, our goals right now are really to shut off inflammation in all patients with MS as effectively as possible to reduce that as the cause of people developing increasing disability. Now, this is a list of the therapies that we currently have available in the clinic. And the ones in the orange are the three that I'm going to talk about. So natalizumab was approved in 1995, taken off the market for one year, put back on the market in 1996. Rituximab is only available as an off-label treatment but has class 1 evidence for benefit for primary progressive MS in particular for young patients. And then the newest drug is Fingolimod, now called Gelinia. And, um, and this drug was approved about two weeks ago and entered the marketplace on October 4th. So these are therapies, though, that are in development. So we're not at the end of, the, of this new phase of treatments. In fact, there are quite a few different agents that are in uh, short-term development. By short term, I mean they could go to the FDA as early as the, within the next 12 to 18 months uh, and could be out within the next 18 to 24 months or 28 months, I would guess, in terms of having another treatment option. So within the next one to two years, we will continue to add new therapies to our treatment toolbox and how we use those therapies will become the major question for us to solve. I'm not going to talk about these therapies because they're not in the clinic yet, but uh, we probably will be talking about them the next time that we have this particular conference. So natalizumab. Now natalizumab is also called Tisabri. This is a once a month IV infusion. It's a monoclonal antibody that binds to a protein called alpha-4 integrin. And that protein is directly involved in immune cells getting into the brain. So what this drug does is essentially closes the door for immune cells to get into the brain. And as a result, they can't attack the brain. So it's a very simple principle. It turns out that this kind of therapy is particularly important in MS, and it doesn't really result in major immunosuppression with the rest of the body. So the other ways we would do this in the past would be to use chemotherapies and kill the immune system so it couldn't get into the brain, and that led to increased risk of cancer and infections. With this particular therapy, there are risks associated with it, but its, order of, uh, its safety is at least two orders of magnitude better, in other words, 100 times better than what we see with the chemotherapy approaches over time. So its effectiveness is quite large. It's one of the most effective therapies that we've studied. This is a graph showing the reduction in the relapse rate. And there's about a 70% decrease in the number of relapses that the average patient was having during the two years of this study. Now, to compare that to the first generation of therapies, the interferons and copaxone in particular, is they result in about a 30% reduction in relapse rate. So this is about twice, a little bit better than twice what we see with that. Now, every patient with MS is different, so this is an average number, and different people will involve, uh, respond differently. And one thing that we see with this drug is that many patients are actually relapse-free, and that's much more likely that's going to occur on this drug than it did with the first generation of therapies. It also has a substantial uh, impact on reducing the probability that 
person will worsen in terms of their disability over a two-year period of time. And in research, the way we measure that is we have a scale that we fill out after we do the neurological exam called the EDSS. And if somebody gets worse by one point on that scale, and then we see them three or six months later, and they're still worse by at least one point, then we call that sustained uh, disability. And so the risk of having sustained disability in patients in this trial was reduced by 50% by the treatment with uh, Tosabrit. Now, to put that in context again with the interference of Copaxone, they have between and then undetectable effect up to about 15% reduction. This is a 50% reduction. So it's a much more obvious and easier to measure. And clinically, it appears to be consistent with our clinical experience with this drug as well. It does have potentially ser serious complications with it. Uh, one patient out of 71,000 patients treated developed CNS lymphoma. In patients that were treated for inflammatory bowel disease, which is the other disease this drug is approved for, there were five cases of unusual infections of the gut. There was one patient reported recently that had uh, hemorrhage in the brain, called hemorrhagic encephalomyelitis, that was on this drug. Um, and, and this one and this one, we can't be sure, are related to the drug. The incidence of those is relatively low, but because of the nature of the mechanism of action of the drug, these might be things that could be consistent, so we'll continue to watch them very closely. And then, so there are patients that will have uh, the infusion reactions like we have with any drug. It's actually no higher with this drug than it is with any protein that's infused or any antibiotic. In fact, it's a bit less. But the most important thing is a disorder called PML, a progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. And there's actually been 68 cases now, and 21% of the patients that developed this complication died. And that's the key news. So the, the PML has kept this at, as a second-line agent, but now uh, with this JCV serology test, we can test the blood of patients that are thinking about using this therapy, and if we detect the antibodies to the JCV virus, then we know they have that risk of PML that I just mentioned. So there's 71,000 people on the drug. There's been 68 patients that have developed PML, and so roughly that's about one in 1,000 and one in 2,000 over a three-year period of treatment. But so far, there's been nobody that's developed PML that's been negative on this blood test. That's about half of the MS population. Now, there is a, a false negative rate, which means that the patient actually does have the antibodies, but the test doesn't detect it, and that's about 2.5%. And that's actually pretty low for a blood assay, so that's actually a good number. So if we take that and we assume that if we do one test and then we classify people, and then we treat those that are negative as though they are truly negative, there still is a chance that in that group that there are a couple of people that actually do carry the virus and are at risk. However, calculating that odd out, it's less than one in 30,000, which right now is unmeasurable. And we're not doing the assay once. Patients are getting the blood assay done every six months or every year. And we would recommend it every year because even if the blood assay was accurate on your first test, there's a 2% conversion rate per patient per year. In other words, 2% of the population will get this infection over the course of a year. We don't know where the infection comes from. Uh, we've known about this virus for some time, but we still don't know where it comes from. It's one of the mysteries of medicine. Ultimately, by the time we reach age uh, 70, about 70% of us will carry this virus. But particularly for younger patients that are newly diagnosed, they have a pretty good odds that they're not gonna have this virus. And what that means is that if you remove the PML from the risk profile of this drug, this drug is actually safer than the interferons much safer than mitoxantral and just as effective. Probably not safer than Copaxone because Copaxone is the safest drug we've got, but it's substantially more effective and the risk profile is not much different. 
So the point of this is, is that for patients who have the positive blood test, this will remain a second-line therapy. We will prefer to use something else first to try to control your disease, and then if you fail that, then the risk-benefit ratios may be in your favor using this drug. But if you're negative, then this is a first-line drug for patients and can be used in that way. And in our clinical experience with it, it does seem to be substantially more effective. About 70% of patients on this drug really have no relapses, their fatigue improves, they gain from exercise, and if they're in the, if they've just been recently diagnosed, it's not uncommon for them to come in and say, I feel like I did before I had MS. And that's not something we heard on the first generation of drugs. So this is a, a debate that's going on around the world, but it is a very important development, and if it holds up with the studies that are going on, continuing to go on with this blood assay, this may be a major change for us in the future. The next drug is called fingolimod. Fingolimod's uh, been in trials for about eight years. Um, it was a drug that was originally developed to treat patients that were undergoing kidney transplants to try to prevent kidney rejection of the, of the transplant. It's in a new class of drugs called uh, S1P receptor superagonist or sphingosomine phosphate superagonist. It's not been used for other, or other diseases before, so it's a new class of drugs. However, the approval process that led to this drug being approved two weeks ago uh, included studies in over 5,000 patients, 2,700 of which were on uh, this drug, fingolimod. When uh, Copaxone was approved, we had 250 patients in the study in the first one and 250 patients in the second study, so a total of 500. So this is 2,700. As a result, we know substantially more about the uh, safety profile and its efficacy. It's now being called Gelinia. That's the brand name. That's G-I-L-E-N-Y-A. I don't think we have any printed materials here today, but we will have them shortly because it was approved by the FDA. The, the materials, printed materials on this have to be approved by the FDA from the company standpoint, and so that's why there's a bit of a delay. So this is the annual leave, uh, reduction of relapses, uh, similar to the analysis that I showed you for Tisabri. And basically what we see is between a 55 and a 60% reduction looking at two different doses of the drug. These are essentially identical, and this is the placebo group. So I told you that with Tetsabri, it was a 70% or 68% reduction. This is a 55 uh, roughly percent reduction, so it's not too much different. And the do dose that's being approved is this dose here. And the reason for that is that there's no real difference between the treatment effects here and in this dose group, there were two serious infections of the brain, encephalitis, both were fatal. Uh, we're not sure that they were due to the drug, but I suspect that they were, and we act as though they are. Nevertheless, this is a major treatment effect. And I should just mention there, you know, talking about death due to, in a study is a very serious thing. There were two deaths in the beta serum pivotal trials that led to approval, and there were two excess deaths in the rebif pivotal trials that led to approval. And that was in about 350 patients, and this is in 2,700 patients. So again, you can't sort of dismiss these drugs as being automatically more dangerous. The fact is, all drugs are dangerous, and you have to think about the risk in the context of how likely you are to have a serious problem with them. This is the effect on progression disability. Again, this is sustained disability for three months. And uh, the reduction here is about 35%. So it's not quite as large as what we see with the Sabri, but it's larger than what we see with the interferons and Copaxone. And this is actually followed out for three years and not just two years. And this is another way to look at it. This is looking at what's the mean change in the disability score over a two-year period of time, or maybe three years, two-year period of time. And, and the point being is that if you analyze it in different ways, uh, we look at the percent of patients that actually do worsen, that's one way. But if you look at the mean disability score, the important point here is that on the two 
on the drug at the two doses compared to placebo, there was actually no change in disability over two years in the treated patients, despite a significant change in uh, mean disability scores on placebo. So that's actually an important point, is that many patients on these drugs probably will feel that they're actually pretty stable. They're not really changing very much on these. And statistically, the probability of that is higher based on this data than what we have seen with first-line drugs. It's not perfect, though. And the last drug I wanted to mention has actually been published for some time. And this paper actually came out last year in uh, 2009. But just to make the point that these drugs I've been talking about have been primarily studying the relapsing forms of MS, not just relapse remitting, but also secondary progressive. But they haven't been studied in primary progressive. There is a study going on now with fingolimod in primary progressive, but we don't yet have any data. But primary progressive MS, in, particularly in younger patients, is treatable. And that's based on uh, this study, which uh, we completed uh, several years ago. It was published in Annals of Neurology last year. And there was a pre-planned analysis looking at age and whether age could predict whether you would respond to the therapy or not. And in fact, it's true. So it fits with that slide that I showed you right at the beginning that suggested that most of the inflammation was going on in the early phase of the disease and the inflammation gradually goes away over time. That's actually true in MS. And so that's why, regardless of what kind of MS somebody has, if they've uh, already been through the MS for 20, 30 years, they're in their 60s and they haven't had a relapse for the last couple of years, none of these therapies do much for them. And so in the future, we'll be taking people off drugs when they hit that point. And that's because the MS process itself is sort of winding down and shutting off on its own. But for patients who are in the period of risk, which is uh, age 55 or less, it's age 51, but it's age 55 or less, you actually see a major treatment effect. So this is the treated group, this is the placebo group that were on uh, rituximab with primary progressive MS. That's a 50% reduction in probability of worsening of the year. That's as good as we see in any form of MS. The problem is, is that this drug becomes generic this year, I believe, and as a result, uh, the companies did not want to spend another three or four hundred million dollars getting it approved by the FDA. So they developed a copycat drug, it's called ocrelizumab, which is undergoing trials and is seeking FDA approval, but that won't be out until 2014 to 2015. And so this is a problem that Rockland MS Center staffs and Tom and other folks are working on to see whether we can develop governmental processes that allow drugs that actually have what we call class one evidence of benefit to be considered for off-label use in a more organized way. Right now, it's a very haphazard thing determined by relatively uh, non-informed uh, processes at insurance companies. But nevertheless, uh, the, uh, these are uh, potential therapy options. As I said, there are clinical trials going on for primary progressive MS. So actually now, for all forms of MS, particularly in the earlier phases, there are treatment options available, and they should be discussed. This is the first time in the history of MS that one can really say that.